you know, the grand destiny that we all have uh, that's stated in all those overcomer promises includes our eternal security, includes the wonderful, deep, full presence of God. And later on in Revelation 21, we find out it's the full presence of the triune God. And that helps us to endure today. You know, some say, well, the book of Revelation is no good. It's just about the future and nothing doesn't help you with today. That's not so. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's cover-to-cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. At long last, we arrive at the back cover of our Bibles in the book of Revelation. And to help us wrap up the series and better understand this often misunderstood, mishandled, and misapplied text, we welcome Dr. Michael Stollard. Dr. Stollard currently serves as the Director of International Ministries for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Prior to this, he held the position of Dean and Director of the PhD Studies Program and Professor of Systematic Theology at Baptist Bible Seminary in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. Dr. Stollard, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for helping us out. Uh, Thanks for uh, letting me uh, join your group here. When we come to the book of Revelation, where do we find ourselves in the storyline of Scripture? Well, that's uh, relatively easy here with the book of Revelation, since it's at the tail end of everything that's gone before, certainly written by John the Apostle in around 95, 96 AD, probably shortly after the well, John, John's gospel was written and the three epistles of John were written. Uh, and so I, I do believe it to be the last book that's written, and it closes out the apostolic age and actually closes out the canon uh, as we go forward. So that's easy to place it historically and canonically in that respect. Excellent. Now, is there a discernible structure to the book, maybe an outline that can help us get our minds around the whole before we get into some of the details? Uh, The answer to that's yes. Uh, The details of that, uh, I think the starting point is Revelation 119. That's where the outline of the book is given. uh, When he says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this, and the book breaks down into those parts, the things which you have seen, the portrait of of the Messiah that he just was given, and the things which are, refers to the, I think, seven letters, the seven churches that are currently in existence at that time. Uh, And then uh, the things which will take place after this begins chapter four, the language there helps us to see that all the way through the end of the book, which takes us to a future time. So to give more specific about the outline, you see Jesus in the midst of the churches in chapter one, the letters of seven churches. Chapters four and five is kind of an intro to the trib. So you have in my my outline from chapter four to 19 is trib. And I see four and five as the intro to the trib. I think it answers the question, uh, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath? And I may have more to say about that a little bit uh, later. And then you have the procession of the, seals and the the trumpets and the bold judgments with some interludes in there and i think uh the the arrangement of the seals trumpets and bowls is telescopic i hold that view so that you see the the seventh seal is the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowl judgments and so you see that spread out and then you come to chapter 19 and the event that ends that sequence of judgments uh, is the second coming of Christ, and then that ushers in the 
earthly kingdom of a thousand years given in Matthew, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 20, which I call the kickoff party for God's eternal kingdom. Uh, and then the, etern the eternality of God's kingdom continues into the new heaven and new earth or the eternal state, as we sometimes call it for chapters 21 and 22. So um, uh, that pretty much kind of gives a structure. And I think it's an easy structure. Mm. I've seen scholars who do some really strange things with the book of Revelation. But if you just take it at face value, go straight forward with it and you uh, see 119 in a straightforward way with its threefold outline, I think the book becomes easier to understand on the whole. Now, you used chapter 4 through 19. You called it a couple of times the trib. What do you mean by the trib? And yeah, and when it talks about the seals and the trumpets, what's going on there? Yeah, well, the tribulation is uh, almost a technical term. It is used in the text, the great tribulation. Revelation 7 mentions uh, that term. But the tribulation is the term for that awful time on the earth, which is the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, that comes into history. Uh, the rapture happens before it. The rapture of the church happens before it. There may be a gap there between the rapture and the start of the trib, the treaty between the Antichrist figure uh, and Israel starts this uh, seven-year sequence. Uh, and then we see the seals, bowls, and judgments, as I suggested. So tribulation, it's, it's a term used in Matthew 24 also to describe it. So it, it's really a word of great doom and gloom and trouble uh, it's an awful time. Uh, Daniel 12, uh, 1 and 2 tells us it's a, a time coming upon the earth. Nothing like it uh, before. And Jesus says nothing like it after as well in the Olivet Discourse. So it's, it's a, a horrible time of God's judgment upon the earth that's coming uh, once the, that treaty is signed between Israel and the Antichrist. Hmm. So it's a horrible time at the end that uh, is right there before Jesus comes and makes all things right. It's kind of like the, uh, the hell that you have to go through before the glory gets here. And it is going to be a hell on earth for those who are living during that time. I've heard many believers admit, and maybe you've heard this as well, in fact, I'm sure you have, that they stay away from the book of Revelation in their personal study because it's, quote, you know, too complicated or too confusing or not understandable. I guess just a point blank question, Dr. Stollard, is that true? You know, can we understand this text and know with confidence what's being communicated? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I've also heard, by the way, that it's too negative and too scary. Yeah, sure. Uh, some people get away from that. And that's a different issue. But I think uh, some scholars, because of their theological views, have hurt us on that point. They haven't helped us uh, because they try to say, because of the apocalyptic genre, the elements of that, that some say the whole book is that. I don't agree with that. But uh, because there are apocalyptic elements in it, you really can't understand the prophetic poetry of the book. All you can grab are high-level points of application throughout it. Uh, and that's what we need to be paying attention to anyway, instead of a timeline for the end-time days. Uh, and that's uh, way out of line, in my opinion. I think it is understandable. It may take longer to study. There are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the amount of Old Testament allusions in Revelation are extremely high. And so you really need to, to, to understand the Revelation text. You need to go back and study each of those Old Testament contexts to help you better understand what's in front of you in Revelation. So that takes a little more time. And then also there are a large number of symbols 
uh, they're in the book and you have to slow down to th- wade your way through that. And some people are just lazy in their Bible study and don't want to do that. So they'd rather read a little handbook on Revelation that gives them a little blurb and that's all they do. And so they never really come to a full understanding of the book and they cast it aside. And by the way, those same people would do the same thing with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. You know, it just takes longer. They're bigger books and they're more detailed. And they have a lot in them that you have to really work at study. And I think uh, people just don't want to do that. They want it to be handed to them like a TV program. Uh, and I think that's not God's way. God wants the Christian life lived reflectively on the scriptures, and that's all the scriptures, including the prophets, including the book of Revelation. So I think it's understandable. You need to just read it and study. Uh, and I think certainly there are a lot of helps that are out there to help us with that, but there are even pastors who don't study it and uh, skip it, and so that doesn't help the people in the church either. They learn from their pastors. It's just not important. It makes sense that as the terminus of special revelation, that it is the capstone of this progressive revelation, that it would depend a lot on what's come before. And so it's helpful to know the Old Testament as you come to the book of Revelation. But even as you describe it with the symbols and everything, it seems like this could be a a hotbed for some very wacky interpretations. How do we, if I come to the book of Revelation, I want to do what you're telling me to do. I want to get into it, to study it, to read it. What are some things you would suggest I put in place before I even get to chapter one? Maybe some decisions I make about how I'm going to read this that would help me stay on the right track and avoid some of that fantastical interpretation. Yeah, I think there's only one thing you do before that, and that is you commit to a grammatical historical interpretation. Uh, That's labeled as a literal interpretation. That's not the same thing as whether a phrase is literal or figurative. You know, the uh, sword that's in the mouth of Jesus in Revelation 19. I don't think any of us believe that when he comes back, he's going to have a piece of steel hanging off his tongue. Uh, That's a figure of speech. It's already defined for us in Old Testament text, the instrument in the mouth as as an act of judgment. So Jesus just speaks the word and slays his enemies in Revelation 19. And that's, that's not hard to get. That's not hard to get at all. And so when you look at those kinds of things in the text, we just need to read it grammatically, historically, and when we come to a symbol, you know, a symbol or a figure of speech versus literal, we have a larger commitment to what's grammatical historical interpretation, and that's a technical thing in the field of hermeneutics, uh, I mean, and we use literal interpretation as the tag for that. that. That includes symbols, figures of speech, and all other things. It includes genre considerations, literary structure, anything else. That's language-based and history-based. We uh, we study it from that frame point, that frame framework. And so uh, as we do that, I think we're not looking for hidden meaning. See, the opposite of literal hermeneutics is allegory, which is searching for hidden meaning that is not textual, it's non-textual, and it comes out of the imagination of the reader. Uh, and so, you know, Origen and the School of Alexandria in the early days, you know, they were reader response before reader response was reader response. They were, they were reading the text and inserting their own thoughts into the text. We don't do that. Okay. And let me give you an example that maybe helps. Please. I've heard a lot of strange things uh, about the woman in Revelation 12, for example. She's clothed with the, the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, and I, I've just seen so many strange things. You know, that's uh, Mary. Uh, the Catholic Church certainly holds that view usually. 
Catholic scholars will hold it. Um, so I've seen some that don't. Uh, but then I've seen uh, uh, other views. It's the church and Israel, or it's the church or Israel, or it's the church. Uh, but in that passage, uh, the woman gives birth to Jesus. I don't think the church gave birth to Jesus. I think Jesus gave birth to the church. So that doesn't make sense. And there's some other wacky things that are out there uh, about that. Uh, but if we look at it again, knowing the allusions from the Old Testament, you go to Genesis 37, that image has already been given to us in the dream of Joseph, very clearly defined. It's not something that we really have to work to understand if we just go back and see it. And most cross-references will give us that in our Bible. And when uh, we come to it, yeah, that's Israel. And that changes the whole per, uh, complexion of that particular passage. So in the end, uh, during this tribulation time, God is supernaturally protecting the woman who is Israel. Makes perfect sense, easy sense. But you have to, uh, when you come to that symbol, you don't just do some knee-jerk response into some weird zone. You just go back and see the Old Testament text that's based upon, and the definition is given to you. Uh, so I think we just need to do our homework, pay attention, slow down if we have to, to make sure we get it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and God loves uh, the cheerful worker uh, who will take time to study it out. Do you have any tips for how to remove ourselves from the interpretive equation? Like you've talked about, we want to avoid reader response and allegorical hermeneutics. But I mean, that can be a lot of fun. And oftentimes that's my default is to read myself in and my own ideas in. How do I protect myself from that mistake and instead depend upon the fact that God is a pretty good communicator and he means what he says and allow the text to have the privilege it deserves? Well, I think uh, one thing might be helpful is if you sat down and you read the whole book of Revelation several times in one sitting, you know, take a Saturday afternoon, read the whole book of Revelation, do it the next Saturday or Sunday afternoon, whatever a time frame. What we do, we read in little snippets instead of reading it holistically. That's a little harder when we come to Isaiah uh, and the big, big giant books, but it really is helpful. Read Isaiah in one sitting. And you see the flow of the entire book. And I think that is protection from you, for you, to keep you from inserting yourself in these little snippets that have no context. And so I think that's important uh, maybe to consider that. Uh, and I would uh, uh, suggest, too, uh, that you read widely in different commentaries. Of course, I would prefer the dispensational commentaries, you know, from a, a literal interpretation standpoint. And there are many out there. And when you read those, they're taking, they're doing their best to take the Bible at face value in the book of Revelation. And I think they'll, you know, if you, if you come to some weird idea in the text, go check it out in the commentaries and, and they'll help, help you put yourself back in the right seat on the bus as you read, read that. So, so tr you know, trust others, but really you're, you're trusting the word of God more than you do the commenters on the uh, book of Revelation. Uh, but still go to them and check them out. Now, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation contain letters to local churches that are long gone. But generally speaking, what can churches in the 21st century learn from this epistolary section of Revelation? Well, let me do a shout out to Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna has always had a Christian presence and uh, never lost it. It's one of the two churches in the book of Revelation for which God had nothing bad to say. Uh, and uh, there have been Christians there in that town 
for 2,000 years. At least uh, I've seen some scholars uh, point to that direction. I think the main point of the churches, the letters to the churches, uh, and I'll just kind of outline it as three points. Churches and individual Christians should not be influenced by the world or culture. Okay, that's, I think that is probably one of the strongest elements that comes up again and again and again in the letters. I think Thyatira, uh, which is the longest of the seven letters, really spells that out in great detail. Uh, even the Church of Pergamum before that uh, has a strong dose of that. And, and, and so one of the things that comes out of the seven letters is that we need to make sure that we are not enculturated, that we're not uh, overcome by the world. You know, we have enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. Okay, so we need to make sure the world doesn't dictate to us what we consider to be Christian. You know, in the, in the church of Thyatira, there were those in the church who were advocating sexual immorality uh, and uh, giving gifts to idols. Uh, you know, so those kinds of things are uh, very problematic. And where they get that? They got it from the culture around them. And so there's a warning to us. We have just as many idols in our culture as they, they do. They may not be little statuettes of uh, gods and goddesses, but they are still there nonetheless. As Paul told us, covetousness is idolatry. So we have to be on guard against that. Second point, I would say, since Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's nothing bad said about them. That tells me that it is possible to please the Lord. Mm. And sometimes Christians get the idea, no matter what I do, God's going to be unhappy with me. Uh, but in those two letters, it helps us to understand God's gracious and it is possible to please him. Third thing is the relative to the future blessing, the promises to the overcomers, you know, the grand destiny that we all have uh, that's stated in all those overcomer promises includes our eternal security, includes the wonderful, deep, full presence of God. And later on in Revelation 21, we find out it's the full presence of the triune God. And that helps us to endure today. Mm. You know, some say, well, the book of Revelation is no good. It's just about the future and nothing doesn't help you with today. That's not so. I mean, why were the two chapters given near the beginning of the book uh, to the present churches of that time? It was to help us. Uh, remember, we have to live in light of what's to come, okay? And then the chapters 4 through 22 give us what's to come. So there's bad times coming, but there's also future blessing. I have a grand destiny. That should give me some confidence as I live now, if I think it through. Well, let's make that shift now to the things that will take place after these things, chapter 4 and beyond. In our series, it's now been a while since we were in the Old Testament prophets. But as we read Revelation 4, 5, and onward, Many of the themes and images seem to harken back to books like Isaiah, Joel, and Zephaniah, pictures of wrath, trouble, and war. Can you help us, Dr. Sellard, understand the anger of God and how it is justified and not antithetical to his love and grace? Uh, yeah, there are. You know, I once had a friend of mine who was not a believer, and uh, he told me that the message of the prophets in the Old Testament was, whoa, things are going to be bad. Uh, and I, I pointed out to him that that's largely true, uh, but that the, every one of the prophets seemed to hold out in some way a measure of hope. And the message of prophecy really is hope. And of course, that's where the book of Revelation uh, ends up. But it's interesting, you know, negativity is just hard for our culture. You know, we live in a day of, I, I refer to it as postmodern softness. Uh, and uh, people reject certain things because they are harsh. Doctrine of hell, like a fire, 
you, know, you can't do this, you can't do that. that you know, it's harsh. They reject it. Uh, the book of An Revelation actually answers the question for us. What gives God the right to pour out his wrath on the earth in the trib? Now, you think the answers there may help us with some other things, you know, his ongoing wrath in the present time in the church age. Uh, and the, the, the answers are given. There are three of them. First one is that people deserve it. In uh, Revelation 16, uh, 5 and 6, uh, the text says this in the second bowl. I heard the angel of the water saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. And some translations just simply say they deserve it. Uh, and so that's one thing. And I think uh, what our culture does, the reason they can't handle wrath is that they can't handle sin. And they have so soft peddled what sin is that uh, when you are created by God and you're not independent, uh, you owe something to that creator. And if you don't live up to what you owe, that's a serious thing. And our culture doesn't live there, doesn't think in those categories. Uh, but the book of Revelation helps us to get back to the doctrine of sin, which is important. Second thing is, uh, it says God is the creator, Revelation 4. Remember, Revelation 4 and 5 are the intro to the trib, and they are answering the question, I think, what gives God the right to part his wrath? And all these thunderings that come out of chapter 4 and things from the throne, there's only one positive image in all of that. Um, it's, it's negative. Uh, but notice what it says. Verse 8, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and, and were created. Okay, so what now? This what's the context of this these statements? Well, he's about to plaster the earth with his judgment and his wrath. You are worthy, O Lord, the text says. So God's the creator, and that gives him a right to pour out his wrath upon the earth. And the third one is the Lamb of God who sits in the throne of God and who is God, is the Redeemer in Revelation chapter 5. You know, about the, the whole thing about the scroll, verse 2, who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? Now let's delve into what that means. Beginning in chapter 6, you, you open the seals and it pours out the wrath. So it, this could be worded, who is worthy to open the scroll and to pour out the wrath of God on the earth? Who's worthy to do that? And the answer, you know, couldn't find anybody. And finally it says, do not weep, verse 5, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then later on, worthy, verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And so Jesus is worthy. So you have those three things. People deserve it. The doctrine of sin. God is the creator. The doctrine of creation. The Lamb of God, who is the Redeemer. The doctrine of redemption. Those things lead us to the conclusion uh, that this gives God the right to pour out his wrath upon the earth. And then we could apply that also to our own time. Uh, if he's, he's done those things, Jesus has died for us. And we've got a creator. And we frankly, we deserve punishment. It's only God's grace that prevents it. So uh, I think our culture has redefined love. They say that contradicts love. They redefine love. The ancients didn't struggle with 
the wrath of the gods or the wrath of the one true and living God like we do. Uh, today, you know, I sometimes I ask a, a person, well, what does God have to do to convince you that he loves you? And I keep pushing them back and back in the conversation. And eventually they'll, it'll boil down to this. God has to let me get away with anything I want to get away with. That's really the cultural mind that's out there. And I just, God is not a mush God, nor is he a harsh God, but he's a balanced God. And Book of Revelation many, many times says God's ways are just and true, no matter what they are. We sometimes sing on Sunday, the wrath of God was satisfied as it was poured out upon Jesus. But there's still wrath to come, clearly, from the book of Revelation. So how is it both and, Dr. Stallard? How is the wrath of God satisfied upon Christ, and we still await this time of unspeakable wrath coming on the earth in the tribulation? Uh, I think the cross is a provision. It's not an application. Hmm. And I certainly hold to a propitiation when we say God's wrath is satisfied. That's, that's a word that's unpopular today. Mm -hmm. You know, some people say, oh, that's divine child abuse, you know, that God would punish his son. Uh, in our place. And it's not at all divine child abuse at all. It's something Jesus volunteered for. And we said Jesus came to earth for. That's the reason he came. Um, and he died satisfying God's wrath upon sin. But it's it, the provision has been made, but it's not applied until a person puts his faith and trust in the Lord. And so the wrath of God throughout history will take its course. And eternal wrath will exist upon those who reject him. Uh, will continue, but it can't be applied because they've rejected it, and God gives them that opportunity to reject it. Uh, but the provision for all has been made. I think this is partly what you were getting at when you talk about the world downplaying sin. But as I look at the great scope of special revelation, Genesis to Revelation, when I understand, or when I understand what the Bible is saying about how much was destroyed when sin entered the world, how much was wrecked, how much it splintered everything, how much sin has affected creation and ourselves, it would make sense that something dramatic would have to happen at the end to fix that same issue. But when I downplay what happened in Genesis, when I think that, oh, it's just some brokenness, some things aren't as they should be, but they will be, then the wrath in Revelation seems disproportionately harsh. Do you think that's true that we sometimes downplay Genesis 3 and the implications it had on everything, and therefore we are then shocked by Revelation? Yeah, well, uh, we probably, culture reading the Bible, would, would struggle with Genesis 3 itself. And then by the time we get to the flood, we're certainly troubled about yes. God judging the whole world there. So, uh, and if you can't handle the flood, you're not going to handle the tribulation period from Revelation 6 to 19. Uh, so that's really an attitude about the, your attitude about sin, about God as the creator and Jesus as the redeemer. Mm -hmm. That affects that. So uh, I would encourage them just to take the Bible at face value and to understand that people deserve to be punished if they don't follow God. Now, as I read through Revelation, I notice that after Revelation 3, the church is nowhere to be found. So I see the church in all of these place, these seven churches, and then the word and churches seems to disappear until the end. Am I reading too much into it? Where is the church during this time of tribulation? Well, I think there's probably something to be said for the fact that in the flow of the book of Revelation, the church is not mentioned from chapter four until we get to chapter 19. There's probably something to that. I wouldn't overemphasize that argument. There are better arguments, I think, to be made uh, about, I think the church is gone. Uh, Revelation 3.10, I think, is a promise to 
to the church, that they would be exempt from the coming time of wrath, this tribulation period, as I take it. I think uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are also uh, a major passage to go to see a see that the day of the Lord wrath as discussed there is all seven years. Uh, people are expecting peace and safety. They're excited about it. And of course, there's the peace treaty at the beginning of the seven years, which helps that. And then they get the, they get clobbered with the exact opposite of what they were expecting. The church is exempt from that, though, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and Revelation 3.10. So the church is in heaven during chapters 4 to 19, in my opinion. Uh, some would see the beginning of chapter 4 and the, the statement of, uh, you know, a voice from heaven saying, come up here. And that's a picture of the rapture. I, I, I don't lean on that uh, as a text. I mean, it fits. That's the time where it would be. But I don't think it, uh, I would put too much stock into that as an argument, although many do. You've mentioned this already, but could you explain to us in brief the 70th week of Daniel? and how the tribulation fits into that, and how God has some unfinished work yet, some unfinished business with Israel to take care of. Well, he has some unfinished business with Israel and the nations. You know, Isaiah thirteen eleven speaks of the tribulation period as God's wrath coming upon the whole world. Uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, speaks of it as a time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time that God has designed for Israel. So it's like Israel's cleansing before they get their kingdom restoration. And I do believe they'll be saved in the day at the end of the trip. Uh, and many uh, you know, the Jews will flock to Christ uh, at that time and uh, enter into kingdom glory uh, with their Messiah. But the world itself is also under uh, that judgment uh, of the tribulation period. As we go, in fact, the term throughout the book of Revelation, the earth dwellers, is almost a technical term for unbelievers. And just like there are uh, believers in Revelation 7 from every tribe, uh, there's going to be those in almost every tribe that reject the Lord as well, and uh, they're under the judgment and wrath of God. But even those who come to Christ during the trib will have to experience the consequences of the wrath of God upon the earth. Uh, but for Israel's sake, it's a time of their cleansing, their national cleansing, talked about in Isaiah and other passages that precedes their kingdom uh, reception uh, when the Lord comes. Let's talk about Revelation 19 through 22. Talk about a stark contrast from the tribulation period and the wrath of God being poured out to how the book ends. What's the timeline of events these chapters describe? Uh, what do we as believers have to look forward to? And how is this just the most beautiful capstone of special revelation? Yeah, I had a friend of mine. I was doing a, a, a Sunday school adult class on the book of Revelation. And we were, you know, I was doing like a chapter a week. And I was in the middle of the trip. And he said, uh, Mike, when are we going to get out of here? Can you speed this up a little bit? Let's get us on down the road to the end. And I can understand why. Mm -hmm. You know, in Revelation 19, you have the second coming. And the second coming... When you and I read, you know, Jesus coming back on the white horse, and we, we get excited about that. But you take a lost person who reads that, and many have. Yeah. They're horrified by that. They don't like that. They think that's mean and judgmental. Uh, and Jesus is coming back, and uh, we can't duck the question. He's coming back. It's a blessing for us because it mentions the marriage supper of the Lamb in the context. But it's judgment upon the unbelieving world. And when Jesus comes back, he actually kills people. And we, we can't duck that question, okay? 
And again, we go back, they deserve it. Uh, and I think uh, this is also in a premillennial framework. You know, Revelation 19, I often say, uh, one of the arguments for uh, premillennialism is that 19 comes before 20. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, and so you have those two chapters. Uh, and so, you know, all millennialists who can't abide that chronology, 19 precedes chronologically 20 in the thousand year millennium. Uh, so they have a different view. They, most of them go back to Augustine, and that even goes back before that, to the all-millennial recapitulation view of the book of Revelation, divides the book of Revelation up into seven parts, uh, and each part rehashes the church age, basically. Each part starts back again with the first advent and moves forward. Uh, some sections go farther forward than others, but uh, it's interesting that uh, in the, these different sections of recapitulation, chapter 20 begins a new section. So they separate 20 from 19. The problem with their whole outline is, you know, the Revelation is divided into seven sections like that, is that it doesn't fit the outline of 119, which we saw, the threefold division of the book. Also uh, violates the what is sometimes called the chi-meter or chi-amateur that's in it. The I mean, there's over 1,200 times, I think it is, or almost 1,200 times the Greek conjunction chi appears, the word and. It's like the Hebrew consecutive in the narratives of Genesis and Exodus, you know, and, and, and. It's just saying, and that gives it a chronological flow of narrative. And we can't duck that. And that doesn't fit the amillennial view of recapitulating everything. And also there's a unified theme between 19 and 20. You have, for example, you have the judgment of the unholy trinity. You have the Antichrist and the false prophet get it at the end of 19 and Satan in chapter 20. That's a, that's a unit. That's a theme that goes together and you can't divide 19 from 20 in light of that. And then finally, there's that theological problem of the binding of Satan, which they're quite aware of their problem. And uh, just exactly what does that mean? And even in the book of Revelation, we see that Satan is active in the church age. You know, the synagogue of Satan is bothering the churches in the book, in the chapters two and three. So they're there and we see other passages where Christians are bothered. You know, the Ephesians 6, you know, uh, where the wiles of, of the devil are dealt with. And you have 1 Peter 5, 8, he's walking around, Satan is wanting to kill all of us. Uh, so he's active, but he's also active in deceiving the lost. In Acts 13, I think it is, uh, Paul is basically calls an, a pagan a son of the devil, uh, which means something there. But then also, theologically, the Second Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. So Satan is actively deceiving the lost today. So there is no way we can say that Satan is bound today. So the premillennial viewpoint is absolutely correct. 19 precedes 20. We have chronology. Jesus comes back and sets up a reign of a thousand years. That rain continues into the new heaven and new earth in chapter 21. There's some differences, of course, major differences. In the millennium, Jesus is on earth. The Father is still in heaven, which is not located on the earth. But in the eternal state, you know, and I, I view the um, new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven in chapter 21. Uh, I don't hold the satellite city view where it's up in the sky. I, I believe it comes down to earth. And the point of it is, that God is changing his address to the new earth. 
so that the abode of God, the third heaven, is actually on the new earth. Uh, and, and that means his full presence is with us, Revelation 21.3. And then the result of that is verse 4, my favorite verse in the Bible. In fact, that was my very first uh, sermon on Revelation 21.4. Uh, I will not let you uh, listen to the cassette tape of that that I have. Um, Hopefully my sermons have gotten better over the years, but it's a very beautiful passage. And when we think about what will be there in that place and time that we experience now, no hospitals and no ambulances and no funerals and funeral directors, no cemeteries, uh, no cancer and diabetes and no COVID. And we just go on and on and on with all the things that won't be there that make that a glorious time for us. And that's at least a thousand and seven years away from where we are right now. Uh, but I, I still wish God would hit the fast forward button and get us there. But that's that's the outline of 19 and 22 as God prepares the future for us. Now, you've called it the kickoff party for the eternal state, this kingdom where Jesus will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. And just listening to you and knowing you enough in your work to know that you believe that this kingdom is yet future and it's earthly, it's a physical kingdom. What are some of the dangers of what is common today, this kingdom now type of theology, that we are doing kingdom work, ushering in the kingdom, uh, those types of sentences, sentiments, what is the danger to misunderstanding this future reign of Christ? It is dangerous language, and what we sometimes, even in our circle, some of our guys will say that, and what they mean is, um, you know, we're advancing the kingdom. We're advancing the cause of Christ. That's what they mean. But we do need to be careful that we don't get sloppy with our language. Now, there is a way to think of, I am advancing the kingdom today, if you mean this. If you mean that I am winning souls to Christ, who are, when they come to Christ today, they become kingdom citizens now. And I do believe we are positionally citizens of the coming kingdom. We're citizens now. If that's what you mean, that's okay. But most of the time, that's not what that means. And so I tend to avoid that language, if, if at all possible. Uh, and it only comes up in conversations when I'm asked that, like, like right now, <laughs> uh, uh, as we think about it. So uh, we do have to be careful with that kind of language. Uh, now, on the other hand, if you ask me a different question, you ask me, is Jesus reigning today? I actually say to you, yes. I mean, he's head of the church. He reigns as head of the church. He's also God. So he's reigning in general sovereignty over all things. I have no trouble in those senses saying that Jesus is reigning today. But what I don't believe uh, is that, uh, for example, his reigning over the church today is what the thousand years in Revelation 20 is about. Uh, and I don't believe it's, it's the coming Davidic fulfillment of all the promises. That's not happening today. We also have some problems. One of the reasons I say the thousand years is the kickoff party because here's one this is a pet peeve with me uh, and that is we sometimes talk and act in our circles as if the thousand years fulfills all of the promises and i i ask a simple question how can a forever promise be fulfilled in a thousand years see the prophets in the old testament they didn't know anything about a thousand years they looked down the court of time and saw a forever kingdom and so for the promises to be fulfilled, the foreverness of the promises to be fulfilled, 
you have to have a forever kingdom. The thousand years doesn't fulfill that. It's just the beginning of the fulfillment. So that's why I like to say it's the kickoff party to God's forever kingdom. Uh, with all with some differences between the millennium and the eternal state, of course, that's natural. But uh, we want to be careful with how we say things. I think we say things that confuse our theological adversaries and confuse the people in our pews. You find it also can confuse the mission of believers today and the mission of the church, the mission the Lord has given us. If we confuse what we are to be about and what our task is, it can kind of freeze us in indecision and uh, ineffectiveness at times. It could do that. And uh, we want to be, you know, and it's, it's not wrong to be politically active as the Lord leads you. It's not even wrong to run as a Christian for president. But none of that's wrong. Any of that stuff's oh, fine. Uh, that's a matter of conscience, uh, but you want to make sure that the cause of the gospel is higher than the cause of government or politics or whatever that goal is. As, as valuable as that has a role in life, it's not the main thing. The main thing is uh, getting the gospel out to the world. Mm. And of course, from my ministry at, at Friends of Israel, uh, we're focused on trying to reach the Jewish people around the world in Israel and around the world uh, with the gospel of Christ and to teach the church what the Bible says about Israel. What would you say is the main thrust of the book of Revelation, Dr. Stollard? If you had to boil it down to its purpose and import, how would you do it? Elevator pitch. What is Revelation about? Why is it important? Yeah, I do. I'd start in Revelation 1-3. Uh, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So obey God, listen to his word, obey God, because Jesus is coming. That's basically the bottom line. And God uh, wants his people, the church, to go to the letters, for example. He wants his people to follow him and his son, regardless of pressures and circumstances. You want to put a little more feet to that. Uh, and then uh, what that means is uh, clearly live now for God in light of his coming kingdom. So we have hope laid out for us as we obey. So I think that's the main thrust of the book. And we believe, as I know you do as well, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so how has God used revelation in your life as you've studied it, Dr. Stoller, to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? Uh, I remember in uh, 1976 and 77, I was saved in 1974. In 1976 and 1977, I undertook a project of outlining the entire book of Revelation. I still have my copy of that. It was pretty anemic, uh, you know, and I didn't have a lot of resources to help me. I was just reading my Bible and a couple Bible dictionaries and things like that. And I, as I was wading through that, you know, I think my love for the book of Revelation started at that time. Uh, and I think the key word in terms of how it's been used in my life is hope. I've never been scared of the, of the bad stuff. I've never been put off by that. I've never thought God to be wrong. The, the book gave me hope. Obedience is worth it. Faith is worth it. And then after you believe, trust the Lord for salvation, following him with your whole heart, it's worth it. The messages of Revelation 2 and 3 do that. Revelation 7, I mean, it talks about the, uh, the people who've come out of the great tribulation have died, the martyrs. It seems to be worth it for them. Revelation 12, how God supernaturally protects Israel. Uh, it seems to me that God's on the job and I have great hope no matter what happens. Uh, and like I said, uh, my first sermon was on 
Revelation 21.4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that's my favorite verse. A lot of times when I sign my signature, somebody asks my signature, I'll put Revelation 21.4 down uh, under it, uh, because that has always been the highlight of my focus. Uh, and so I believe Jesus is coming to make all things right. And I long for that day, um, but I can function now. I'm not dysfunctional now because I'm focused on that. You know, Peter told us to focus on uh, what's to come. So I, I think it's appropriate for me to be focused on what's to come because it helps me to live now. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Well, thanks again for all the time you've given us today, Dr. Stollard, and helping us understand Revelation a little bit better. Much appreciated. Lord bless you. Happy to do it for you. Thanks for joining us this week. To listen to previous episodes in this series covering other books of the Bible, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. It's our sincere prayer that these conversations have helped you better understand the God who has revealed himself to us in his word from cover to cover.